Well, good evening, church. Before I, before we proceed, rather, to the ministry of the Word, I thought I would like to take this opportunity to address you all and all saints regarding last weekend's National Day Rally speech by Prime Minister Lee. And uh, as you all probably are aware, the government has now taken the step, a rather difficult step, to repeal Section 377A. And so the question for us is, what does this mean now for us in the church? Well, I would like to maybe perhaps propose or suggest to you three things that we ought to be doing. Firstly, let us be mindful that as Christ welcomed and He died for all, I think we should take the step to be ready, to be prepared, to welcome perhaps anyone without any prejudice to who enters into this door. We should be ready to kind of welcome them and share with them the truth in the gospel. Now, of course, this does not mean that we condone their action or their behavior. Just as the way we don't approve the way of criminals and sinners, but nevertheless, as we are taught in scriptures that we are to love one another, so let us be mindful that we do not know what will happen. But people may walk in our doors and we may have uh, people like this. So it's important that we not have any prejudice, but learn to welcome them and to love them. And hopefully that as they are in our midst, the word of the Lord will change their hearts, their minds to come to live the right truth. Secondly, I think being the year of equipping for us and all saints, I think this episode also reminds you and I for the need to continue to be equipped with the Word of God. And this is so that you and I, we need to be grounded in the truth and not be swayed by the many influence of this world. And so the call for us is really, you know, not to be sympathetic to what is wrong, as we can see why many of uh, people are supportive of this LGBT movement. Sometimes people do not know the truth. They are just sympathetic. But as we are grounded in the Word, we know what the Word of God says. We don't be sympathetic to what is wrong, but rather we be resilient to what the truth that is found in the Bible. So the second thing for us is really to be grounded in the Word. And if you're not being strong in our reading of the Word, I think it's an appropriate time for us now to really take the time to be focused and ground in the Word of God. And finally, may I also just take this opportunity to invite any of you, if you may be struggling in this area, or you may have some questions or issue, I just want to let you know that the church is open. You may call me or any of the staff. We'll be here to talk to you, to share with you, to help you in any way possible. All right? So with this, I hope that we will continue to just remain strong and faithful, trusting in the Lord that He will see us through. And with that, we invite Jeffrey to now read for us the passage. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. This afternoon, the scripture reading is taken from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 5, verse 1 to 15. Nehemiah, chapter 5, verse 1 to 15, taking from chapter 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. 
For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain, that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get, to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money from the king tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our son, children as are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel for it myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brothers. And I held a great assembly against them, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers with, who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that, you may, that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not be to walk in the fear of our Lord to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, and their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of great money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they say, We will restore this and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of the, my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labour who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th years to the 32nd year of Ezekiel the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver, even their servants lauded it over the people, but I do not do so because of the fear of thy God. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for the gospel. The gospel is taken from the 25th chapter according to the Gospel of St. Matthew, beginning on the 37th verse. Glory to Christ, our Saviour. Matthew chapter 25, verse 37 to 46. Matthew 25, verse 37 to 46. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison 
and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of these of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, but you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of these you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise to Christ our Lord. Please be seated. Let's come together as we gather before the Lord's word. Let's just pray for the Lord to be with us and for the Lord to come and speak into our lives. Lord, we come with, with a thankful heart we come before you just focused and surrendered to what you want to teach us. In each thing that we do, in each word that we say, from the very essence of our being, Lord, come and shape and mold us. Speak through us. Speak to us. And may the words that are spoken today be words that are from you, even as we continue in this series, Lord. Mold us to be who you want us to be, to serve you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's good to see everyone here. Um, I know it's been a while since you've heard from me, but for the youth, too bad. Lah. For the adults, they haven't heard from me in uh, three months. You all hear me every week. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> it's good to see everyone to be gathered together here as one family to just come and to celebrate Holy Communion. Why don't we just start by turning to someone to your left and your right and just telling them, right, we are family. Very nice. And as one family, as one family that God has brought together, as one family that God has brought together here, we remember that we are united in the bond of love. We are united in God's love. We're united by the same baptism in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're all called in this room as part of His big family, God's big family, as well as this family as church. And being here in, in, in the church, being here as part of God's family, we are all called as part of our of what it means to be Christian, to fulfill the Great Commission. If we, and if we are thinking about why we're talking about leadership, thinking about maybe like, uh, I'm not a leader, blah, blah, blah. But if we think about it, in the very essence of the Great Commission, when we are called to make disciples of all nations, there is an essence of leadership that each of us are being called to, in that we are being called to lead people to Christ. And especially in this season, especially as we think about the promises of God that are happening, as we look at the growth that God is bringing for that God is bringing into our midst, as we look at the youths that are here, as we look at the new ones who are coming and who are joining this family, we see that it's a fulfillment of the word that Reverend Darren shared with us about Isaiah chapter 60, where this is a season of growth, a season of blessing, a season of expansion, a season where we're going to see people returning to the Lord, where the Lord is going to expand our clan, so the Lord is going to expand the things that we do. 
And this is the work and this is the call that each of us in this family, in this family of all saints, are being called to. That as a people saved by grace, saved by God, saved on the cross, we are called into this divine work that God has set out for us in this congregation to do. And now we go into something hypothetical. So suppose one day, I'm going to use random names, Dean decides that I will, be, I will dedicate two months of my life to, let's say we want to renovate the sanctuary, okay? I'm going to dedicate two months of my life to renovate the sanctuary. And to do that, he decides he's going to take a two-month loan from his boss, Carl. And he's going to tell Carl, for two months, I'm not going to work for you, but I'm going to loan that amount of money from you so that I can come and build into what the Lord is doing. And let's say Carl agrees, but Carl decides to charge an extremely high interest rate. All fake, ah, don't worry, I don't go after Carl. Ah. Okay? But let's say he decides to call and charge an extremely high interest rate. And so, even after the two months or during the two-month period, work and work as Dean might try after that, he cannot pay back that amount of money. Right? And he cannot pay back that amount of money, and so he... This is a bit extreme, but he sells his home, he sells everything, and he still cannot pay back that amount of money. And then he goes to Pastor Darren, and he says, Hey, boss, I spent all my money, I loaned all this money to come and build the church, and now this cow is make, taking away, so, charging me so much interest that I cannot pay him back. And I'm losing everything because of that. Again, that's all not true, but that is the problem that Nehemiah faces as we come into Nehemiah chapter 5. It's a scenario like that that greets us as we enter Nehemiah chapter 5. So far, we've been introduced to Nehemiah as a leader, right? We've seen his character as a man who waits on the Lord, as a man who waits in line with God's timing. But there's another perspective whereby if we see at every single chapter, so far, Nehemiah has had to solve a problem. He first had to deal with that personal problem, right? The Jews were being oppressed. How was he going to respond to that? Then he had to deal with a political problem. How was he going to face the king? Then he had to deal with a resource problem in chapter 3 to ask, how can I build this wall? Then last week, we talked about the bumps of what we climb on, the oppositions that Nehemiah had to face. And now we come to chapter 5 where we see he faces an internal issue. And as we dive into today's chapter, it should occur to us that this issue is not one that's far away from our doorstep. It's not one that will never affect us because essentially what's happening is an internal conflict. That like the Jews, we have been called to mission. Like the Jews, we have been called to play a part in building the city of our Lord. Like the Jews, we need to put our hands to the plow and while they have an external opposition to deal with, sometimes... It is us internally that create opposition to the work, right? That the way that we treat those around us in this community, this too can become an issue that stands in the way of what God is doing. <coughs> and so let us understand the circumstances surrounding Nehemiah chapter 5. Sorry, I completely missed this slide. Let us understand the circumstances surrounding Nehemiah chapter 5. We begin in verse 2. Right, where it says, let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. See, what was happening here was that the people had begun to work on the wall of Jerusalem. In fact, they were so committed to the cause 
that what was agreed upon by Bible scholars and what we see in the text and what is implied in the text is that many people had left their day jobs in order to turn to the building of the wall. And most of them were farmers. And so we can imagine, right, in a society that's mostly agricultural, these people left their jobs, but who was going to tend to their fields? And that meant that in many cases, the men left the house to do the work and the women and the children were left behind to tend to the fields for that period of time. And to make matters worse, right, verse 3 tells us that at this time, a famine hit the land, right? It says, mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain because of the famine. And of course, the sacrifice and the extent that the Israelites went to in itself is a lesson for us. But let's take a look at how deep the plight was. That verse 3 says that they are so, verse 2, sorry, they are so poor that they are basically begging for grain to keep alive. They are mortgaging their houses, their vineyards, their fields in order to get out of the famine, right? They had to borrow money to pay the king's tax. And as a result, what it tells us later on is that they had no choice but to force their own children into slavery. That was the extent of the oppression that they were facing. But the big issue here is of course, it's an issue that they were facing these problems, but the biggest issue here was who was causing this oppression amongst them. And that's where we jump back to verse 1, and we see that the people that were causing this oppression amongst them were their own Jewish brothers. That it was the Jewish upper class themselves, blinded by their own greed, blinded by their own selfishness, that they were causing all these hardships to their fellow brothers. And so there is a clear need, right, for fairness and a clear need for justice to come into the picture as they bring these concerns to Nehemiah. In other words, the question for us and the lesson that we can learn is when there is an issue amongst us, when there is an issue in this community, how do we deal with it? When there is an internal conflict that hinders the work of the Lord, how do we respond? Remember that being called to the Great Commission, all of us are in that sense called to be leaders, to lead people to Christ. And that's where we learn these lessons from Nehemiah. So first we look at Nehemiah's response. The people had brought this complaint before Nehemiah and ever the compassionate and caring leader, the Bible immediately records Nehemiah's response upon the conclusion of their complaint. And that is to say, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. It's of note that Nehemiah's response, immediate response, is one of anger. Now, this was not an anger that Nehemiah acted out of, right? But nonetheless, Nehemiah got angry. And if we look at that, the reason why Nehemiah got angry is because it links back to that idea that Nehemiah was someone who was concerned for the things of God and concerned for the people of God. That he saw the oppression that the Jews were facing and he felt within him, this cannot be so. That when people went against the will of God, anger was his natural response. Anger was his natural response. As Old Testament John, John Goldingay puts it, there is something wrong with you if you don't get distraught when you hear bad news about the people of God and if you don't find yourself compelled to pray and to do something about it. So anger is a perfectly natural response to a perversion 
of the things of God. In fact, Golden Gate in his commentary goes as far as to say that anger is a type of a fruit of the Spirit, a capacity that God uses to get things done. Please note that in no way is Golden Gate saying that we are supposed to act out in anger. It is not talking about acting out in anger, but it is pointing us to the fact that God can use that righteous anger, use that emotion to put us on the right path to seek Him and take the right action. In other words, righteous anger can stir us to get the right things done. It is simply pointing out that Nehemiah's anger coming out of a concern for God was what compelled him to take action. And while it stirred in a desire to take action, notice what Nehemiah did with that. He didn't get angry, go there, and start throwing things against the wall and screaming everywhere at the people, right? Nehemiah in verse 7 says, he pondered them. I took counsel with myself, or in the NIV it says, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials. In other words, Nehemiah's anger may have triggered in him that desire to take action, but he first carefully reflected on the issue. He first carefully reflected on the issue. And this idea of pondering here points to the fact that he considered what the charges were that were brought before him. He considered them, he understood them, he tried to understand exactly what the plight was going on, and we can be nearly certain that he did so in front of God. And afterwards, we see how Nehemiah, after pondering, only after pondering, he brings forward the accusation to the people in a very clear and concise manner. And this process that Nehemiah goes through, right, if we take a step back, this process of emotion, reflection, and action is a process that is pretty instructive for us as Christians. In fact, if we think about it, we can see parallels or we can see shades of how this process led to the cross. That all of us being sinners and God loving us, He pondered what to do and that, and that resulted in the sending of His Son. And in the same way as we, are, as we grow as disciples of God, when we look at the things of the world, when we respond to things like we just heard of and tackled in terms of what Reverend Darren just shared on the repeal of 377A, when we look at the war in Ukraine and Russia, when we look at the tension in Taiwan and China, uh, Taiwan and the US and China, when we look at all these things, it is shallow response, shallow response to simply say, wow, so bad, the world is so bad, the world is so sad. The question about it is, as a people who have been saved by God's grace, where does that emotion take us? As we reflect on that emotion, and that emotion's a good thing because it would be honestly scarier if it doesn't affect us at all, that emotion itself is a good thing, but what do we do with that reflection? Do we bring it before the Lord? Do we bring it before God and ponder, God, what is it? What is the response? How do you want me to respond to this? And then as the Lord leads, we take action. Right? See, emotion alone creates a shallow response. Emotion alone creates a shallow response. But this emotion is not supposed to overwhelm you. It is not supposed to overwhelm us. It is supposed to draw us back to God. Right? We can think about the development of the LGBTQ movement and 377A. 
We can simply be concerned about how it goes against God's design. We can have a purely emotional response that decides this is not of God and decides to just shut everybody out. Or we can go in the other direction, lose sight of Scripture and say, no, we should accept them all, right? But regardless of it, the question is, when we see it and when we know that it is not of God, when we see it and when we know that it's not in God's design, what is our Christian response? And it's all well and good to have that sense that this is not God's design, but what's the next step that we take with it? Right, very often this idea of reflection, the notion of reflection, involves education, involves discovering why is, in this example, why is God's design for marriage one man, one woman? What is the perfection and what is the message that God wants to bring about? And when we do that reflection, when we get into that and when we dig into what the Word of God says, then we can respond not just out of a, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong, but in a way that shows the love of Christ because what we are pointing them back to is not moralistic right and wrong, it is the very design and the very beauty of what God intended marriage to be. In this same emotion, reflection, action, right? When we're here in church, when we see a need, what is our response, right? Do we go before God and ponder, God, how do you want me to serve? God, are you compelling me to serve with this need that I have just seen? See, all of us called to this role of making disciples, called to build this church, if we haven't even crossed that line of feeling something, when we see that God's work is not done. Perhaps that in and of itself is something to reflect on. Why are our senses dulled to the things of God? But if we are already feeling something, we see the injustices in the world, we see the shake that, has come, that is going to come upon Singapore, we see the differences that are happening here. If we see those things, does it compel us to reflect, to search the Lord's will, and then to respond as He desires? That's what Nehemiah did in dealing with this issue. He felt that emotion, but he brought it before God and God directed the way and the steps that he took. Next, we then look at Nehemiah's appeal. Nehemiah, he brings the charges and he calls for a large meeting to deal with them, right? This shows a leader who is bold, where an issue in society that affects everyone in this case, it would have been people who were either directly involved, since most of them were farmers, or they heard about it. Nehemiah called them all together. And there was no like PR or trying to be nice at these large meetings. Nehemiah was not harsh in any means, but he simply stated plainly the issue at hand. And as leaders, as we grow in this way, that is instructive in the same way because we are not to be afraid of approaching issues. And so he calls the assembly together and he very plainly tells them, I told them you are charging your own people interest. And in response, Nehemiah makes three appeals. The first is an appeal to the way of love. In verse 8, it records, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. He points out the fact that they are brothers. He points them back to the unity that these people who they were treating so badly were brothers. 
he points out how the upper class in the community were turning against the very people that they were supposed to be one with. In other words, it was an appeal to conscience as much as it was an appeal to love. And if we thought about that, that can speak very sharply and very carefully into who we are as a community. As a people who believe in God, as a people who have been set free by God, as a people who are loved by the one above, do we go around and inadvertently do the very thing that God has freed us from? That these people in Nehemiah, they were coming out of exile, they were coming out of being oppressed, and being freed by the Lord, it is the upper class in their society that decides to treat them in the wrong way. As a people set free by God, do we love our community or do we treat them exactly as what the Lord freed us from? So this appeal from Nehemiah speaks right into the heart that we are meant to be a community, a community united in Christ. But in the way that we treat one another, do we inadvertently oppress people in any way that hinders the work of the Lord? Here, the appeal to love essentially says, don't do the very thing that I have freed you from. The second, Nehemiah appeals to the way of the Lord. Verse 9, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? Nehemiah appeals directly to what the Lord had commanded. He points out the root issue. That to treat someone in this way shows that you have forgotten who God is. Shows that you have forgotten who God is, you have missed out, you have forgotten who God is supposed to be in your life, you've lost the value of who He is. It's like that kid, right, who thinks that his parent is not watching and so he takes all the candy in the world and then, lo and behold, the parent is right behind them. And the moment they see the parent, they put everything back. Nehemiah, in pointing out that the people are not walking in the fear of the Lord, basically says, you are living life like God is not seeing you. You're not paying attention. You're, not, you're forgetting how God has loved you. And this fear is of, of the Lord is not an oppressive fear that is out of, like, fear of punishment, but it is a fear that is to hold God in high regard and in reverence of the Lord's way. This is not Nehemiah taking a Bible and slapping it in someone's face, but it is Nehemiah saying to a people, if you believe in God, if we believe in God, we act in the way that He wants us to. That if we really saw who God was, we would not be treating the people the way that they were treating them. So he appeals to the way of the Lord and then he appeals to their life call. In the second part of verse 9, it says, well, the complete verse is, shouldn't you walk in the way of our Lord to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? To avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. This isn't saying that Gentiles are enemies now. Huh? If it's saying that we're all enemies of each other, it's not saying that. But it is saying to the people of Israel, the way you behave, 
It's not different from anyone who's a non-believer, from a people who do not yet know God. How is the way that you live your life not going to attract disdain, not going to attract reproach from the enemies, from the people who despise God? Are they not going to look at us and think, if they see what we're doing here, what difference are they living from us? They're God real, man. They sure don't look like it. They sure don't act like it. It echoes that teaching in 1 Corinthians 6. When brother brings brother to court and Paul says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be accused? Where our actions and how we treat each other are the precise witness to those who are yet to know God. So we see Nehemiah's appeal. He appeals to the way of love. He reminds them that you are meant, we are meant to be one body in Christ. We are meant to love one another, to love one another and be united in that unity of love. Then he takes it a step further and says, if that's not enough, let me appeal to the way that God has called you to live, to what God has instructed us to be, to who God has instructed us to be and what He has instructed us to do. And then he says, and if that wasn't enough, remember that we are called to be witnesses. Remember the call of our lives. And if we think about it, as a community called to make disciples of all nations, this is something that is very much a model of discipleship. That when we speak to one another, when we speak into each other's lives, how can we encourage each other to live the way that God desires? We can appeal to the way of love. We can appeal to what God has called us to. And we can appeal to the call that is over our lives. In all, if we take a step back, we see what Nehemiah does. He gathers the people involved. He, involved, he brings the issue out. And he doesn't simply scare them into making the right decision, but he makes an appeal to these three things in order to correct them and to encourage them and to put them back on the right path. And finally, he doesn't just make this appeal, he wraps it up in a very nice bow tie from verses 11 to 13 as we look at how Nehemiah did the follow-up. Return to them their fields this very day their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money and grain and wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing of them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fall of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise so he may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Nehemiah addressed the people in the wrong. And the people responded well. But he didn't just hold them to account by himself. He underscored the whole address by holding them accountable to God. And this in itself, as we embark on journeys of discipleship, is instructive for the way that we are supposed to lead, the way that we are supposed to disciple. That we need not force and drive people there, but we definitely say, this is what God is calling you to. This is, what, this is the way that God desires us to act. This is my job to point that out to you. 
you decide not, it is not me to whom you are accountable, it is to God Himself. That Nehemiah responded to the needs of these people and he pointed them back to the Lord. That it is to God Himself that they are accountable. And so we take a step back and we appreciate how Nehemiah responds to needs. Notice that at no point did Nehemiah take the easy way out. That as governor, it would have been easy for him to go to them when the people come in and just say, nah, here's some money, take, take, go away, don't disturb me anymore. Sorry. Take, take, go away, don't disturb me anymore. But instead of doing that, Nehemiah went to the root issue. Nehemiah bothered to get down to the ground to disciple them and to solve the root issue of what caused the commotion. It wasn't just a plaster to say, nah, take money and go away. But he called those people responsible for the oppression and he dealt with it right there, right then. That was how Nehemiah responded to the needs of the people. He dealt with it at its root cause. And in that, we see the shades of a saviour. We see the shades of a saviour. Where in the gospel passage that was read earlier, as the people saved into the kingdom of God, who are called to lead people to Christ, we too are called to meet the needs of others. We are called to meet the needs of those around us. And as the gospel passage talks earlier, it is well, right and good that the, the thing that we did for the least of this, we did for Christ Himself. That it is well, right, and good to care and to pay attention to the physical needs of those around us. But as Nehemiah went to the root of the issue, let us also realize that in solving the conundrum, in going to the root of humanity's issue, the world's greatest need is for the Lord Himself. The world's greatest need is for the Lord himself. And as a people who have been saved by God, as a people who have been saved by the cross, who like the Israelites have been delivered from the oppressed, let us grow to not just beyond being bigger than oppressing those, than not oppressing those within us, lest we forget the very gospel that we have been saved by. But let us recognize that we have a call to meet the needs of the world, of the people around us that is physical needs, no doubt, but most of all, it is the need for this world for God Himself, for an encounter with our Savior. That we rise up to answer our call to the Great Commission. That we rise up to answer our call to live out a lifestyle of evangelism and a culture of discipleship to correct the wrongs as required that we may rise up as a church to lead people onto Christ himself. That like Nehemiah, let us be a people who hear the cries of this broken world, who hear the cries of those around us, And we see their need for a saviour. And so compelled by this emotion, so compelled by seeing how the world needs God, we ponder the next steps. 
that we steep ourselves in the Word of the Lord, we grow in our relationship with God, and we get involved in what the Lord has called us to as a church, and we put our hands to the plow, recognizing that as a people saved by grace, we are called to answer the greatest need that this world has ever known. That's not a need that we can answer, that's a need that is answered by us pointing them to Christ. As a church growing to be equipped as saints. Yes, we are called to meet the needs of our people. Yes, we are called to need, meet the needs of those around us. And they are all important individual actions. But the underlying heart of it all is to point them to a saviour. That as Nehemiah dealt with that root issue, the root need of the world that we live in is Christ himself. So as we respond, I'm just going to pray as before 30 leads us in this song. Lord, indeed, we see the call that you have on our lives. call that you want us to answer the needs of the world, but we know that this world's greatest need is you. All in the midst of what we've been going through this week, in the midst of the challenges that we have been facing, in the midst of the changes in our society, all the more we are reminded that what this world needs is you. And like Nehemiah, let us rise up to be leaders who deal with issues at their root, who deal with issues by pointing people back to you. Give us strength and give us grace. Strengthen us in all our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.